theyeshiva.net. Today's class is dedicated by Ilana Mantel from Berkeley, California, in tribute to Ava Sisral and the unity of all the Jewish people. Okay, that's a beautiful and heartwarming tribute. Thank you very, very much. So we are now in the days leading up, of course, to Shavuos. And our sages teach us that David HaMelech passed away on Shavuos, which is one of the reasons that on Shavuos we read and learn the Megillah of Rus, which traces the lineage of David HaMelech upwards. But today we're going to discuss another aspect of David HaMelech's life, of David HaMelech's life, not his lineage upwards, but downwards, including his own friendship with Yonis. And it's also connected, it's connected not only to Shavuos, which is the yard set of David HaMelech, but also to the Pirkeyavis, between Pesach and Shavuos, we learn Pirkeyavis, the ethics of the fathers, and this coming Shabbos is the fifth chapter of Pirkeyavis. And over there, there is also a fascinating and perplexing Mishnah that is very much connected to David HaMelech in both parts of the Mishnah, as we will see. So let's open up the first source sheet, Pirkeyavis, Perik Hey. Mishnah Tazayin. This is the fifth chapter of the Ethics of the Fathers. Mishnah 16. According to some texts, it's Mishnah 19. Says the Mishnah, quote, Kol ava she'itluye bedavar, bottle davar p'tela ava. V'she'en itluye bedavar, e'na p'tela la'ayla. Translation. Any love that is dependent on something, when that thing ceases, the love also ceases. But a love that is not dependent on anything never ceases. And the Mishnah goes on to illustrate, to give an example. What is an example of a love that is dependent on something? It's the love of Amnon towards Tamar. What about a love, an example of a love that is not dependent on anything? This is the love of David to Yohannesen. David towards Jonathan. That's the conclusion of the Mishnah. At first glance, the Mishnah is giving an observation, an observation about life, an observation about love, telling us there are two types of love. There is a love that's dependent on something, so its power, its existence, stems from that something, that davar, tluya bedavar, something, and of course, therefore, if that thing is gone, there goes the love. <laughs> the love is also gone and fades into oblivion. There is another love that is not dependent on a davar, on anything, so therefore, he says, it will never cease. Because it's not dependent on that thing. It's not dependent on anything. So therefore it never ceases. And we have the two examples. What are these two examples? The Mishnah, of course, relies on the person learning the Mishnah to have learned Tanakh. Specifically, Sefer Shmuel Aleph and Shmuel Beis. The two books of Shmuel. And then one knows immediately the story of Amnon and Tamar. And the story of 
David and your Highness. In brief, we have two stories here that the Mishnah depicts. Both are connected to David HaMelech, whose Yartzeit is on Shavuos, because Amnon and Tamar, of course, are children of David HaMelech. So both, it's very interesting that both parts of this Mishnah, both illustrations of love, are connected to David. One is David himself, versus his friend Yonason, Yonason, and the other one is David, David's children, Amnon and Tamar. What's the first story? The first story is about Amnon and Tamar. It's in Shmuel Bey's Perikid Gimel. You have it here in your source sheet. It happened afterwards. Avshalom, who was the son of David, had a beautiful, gorgeous sister. Her name was Tamar. And Amnon, another son of David, really loved her. Amnon began to experience distress. He started to get sick because of his crush on Tamar. And he was wondering, how can he get close to her? And then the Tanakh goes on to tell the whole story. And brief Tanakh says the story in detail, and briefly the story is as follows. And then we just have to understand how the family worked. Amnon and Tamar were only half-siblings. They had the same father, but not the same mother. They had the same father, David HaMelech, but their mothers were different mothers. Because Tamar was a daughter of a woman named Macha. Avshalom was a whole brother of hers, because he was also a son of David, and a son of this woman named Macha, who was David's wife, one of David's wives. So Avshalom and Tamar were full siblings. They shared the same father, David, and the same mother, Macha. Amnon was also a sister of, a brother of Tamar, and a brother of Avshalom, but only a half-brother. They shared the same father, David Amelech, but, uh, but Amnon came from another woman. Her name was Achinoyam. Achinoyam, Hayizraelis, was a different mother. So therefore, Amnon and Tamar were half-siblings. They shared the same father, but not the same mother. Now, one more little detail to be able to appreciate context of the story. Thank you, Rabbi Shemal Baruch Avshalom and Tamar's mother, Macha, was a very interesting woman. She was the daughter of a non-Jewish king whose name was Talmi. He was the king of a, of a region or tribe, a, a, a place in Eretz Yisrael, in the Golan, up north, that was called Gishur. How did David come to this Macha? She wasn't a Jewish woman. She went through a conversion. But it wasn't such a simple process. The Gemara says in Sanhedrin that she was what's called an Eishas Yifas Toyer. You know the mitzvah of Eishas Yifas Toyer? In Parshas Kiseitze, huh? In Parshas Kiseitze, yeah. It's a very perplexed, a very, a very fascinating mitzvah. Recognizing the difficulties of war. When people are in war, all the boundaries break down. As Rashi says, the Dibra Torah connected Yitzhahara. The Torah addressed the fact that soldiers in war often lose the plot because of the blood and the violence and the atrocities and the trauma. Today we have a name, PTSD, but that's a new name that happened after the Vietnam War when therapists began dealing with the, the casualties, not, not those who died, those who came back to the United States of America. They coined this new phrase, of post-traumatic stress disorder, 
which wreaked havoc on so many people's lives, on so many levels, especially domestic abuse, and the inability to maintain normal functional marriages and relationships with their families. But here we're talking about not PTSD, we're talking about as it's happening in the midst of war. So the Torah gave permission. At the beginning of Parshas The soldier, the Jewish soldier, is extremely overtaken by a desire towards a woman, one of the captives, one of the enemies. The Torah allows there to be one relationship, but that's it. That's it. If you want to continue the relationship, you could bring her home. She spends a month with you in the house. Let her and you see what's going on. And then if she wants to go through a conversion and you want to marry her, shine. That's called the case of Eishas Yifastoya. Macha was one of these women. When David was with her during the war, she became pregnant. And the child was Tamar, a daughter. Later she decided to convert and she married David fully. And then they had another child, Afshalom. Avshalom, who was uh, absolutely handsome, the Tanakh describes how gorgeous and beautiful and handsome he was, with his long hair. He was a Nazir as well. Of course, his mother was an Aishas Yifastaya. He was also Yifastaya. That's what Chazal explained. What this means is something very interesting. Halachically, if a Jew is with a non-Jew, and there's a child, that child traces its lineage to the non-Jewish mother. The child is, not, is called a non-Jew, even though technically... The father, biologically, the father is Jewish. The seed comes from the father. But nonetheless, halachically and spiritually as well, halachically and spiritually as well, this child is considered a non-Jew and considered the child of the mother. That's how it works, halach. If the child wants to convert later, so even though biologically this is the father, but Gershon is like a new person. So halachically, there was a very interesting thing. Tamar and Amnon could get married. Tamar and Amnon could get married, even though they share the same father, but because Tamar came from a woman, a Yifas Toya during war, before she converted, so Tamar was considered an independent person, even though she was part of the family, so she could really marry Amnon. So the Tanakh tells the following story. I'm giving this context, so you'll understand the story. Amnon, who's a half, who's a half a brother of Tamar, again, they share the same father, biologically, but not the same mother. Amnon is David Amalek's oldest son, coming from his wife called Achinoah. That's Amnon. He's David's pchar, David's oldest son. Tamar is one of David's daughters, who comes from another woman, Macha, as I told you, in the middle of war. She was the daughter of a king, the daughter of Talmik Shur. And Afshalom was another brother of hers, a full brother of hers. And Amnon is, has this deep, deep feeling towards Tamar. That's what the Mishnah is describing. And he becomes completely sick and overwhelmed. This is his crush. This is his thought. Day and night, this is what he wants. But he can't do it. Tamar is an extremely noble woman, girl, a dignified girl, a discreet girl. So he says, Vayipole, there's no way to do it. Amnon had a friend who happened to be also a cousin. His name was Yonadav, and he was a sly fellow. And he once discussed it with him. And this man, Yonadav, gave him a... You remember that? You learned the story in... Uh, you never learned the story in school? Huh? It's in Shmuel. Shmuel. You skipped this parak? Really? Okay. Well, it's in the Tanakh, so you could uh, you can open it up. You, we have here the sources. Perik Yud Gimel in Shmuel base. So, 
Amnon, so Yonadav gives him advice. Advice is, he should feign illness. He should become deathly sick. And when his father will come visit him, David, and will say, what can I do for you? He'll say, you know, I would like Tamar to come help me and assist me in my illness. And then from there you'll be able to uh, negotiate what you want to negotiate. And this is what happens. He makes himself terribly, terribly ill. And David, of course, comes to visit him. It's his son. It's his oldest son. How can I help you? I would love if Tamar, our sister, my half-sister, could come and help me. Maybe he says she could make me latkes. That's what he says, levivois. She could make me latkes, or what he called dumplings. You know those dumplings in the soups? That's what he wants her to make. And she can feed them to me and nurture me back to health. So David HaMelech asks Tamar to do it, who does it very happily. And Tamar is there, and she's serving him, but he can't eat. He's sick. And he wants everybody to leave the room. And of course, when everybody leaves the room, he's along with Tamar. He begins to talk to her and communicate to her about his profound emotional desires towards her. And Tamar says, this is not what we do. This is not what Jews do. This is repulsive. This is abominable. This is inappropriate. Halachically, we can actually get married. Why don't we have a conversation with Tati? David HaMelech, and it could be arranged in a very nice way. Amnon refuses. He wants it now. And the Tanakh describes that Amnon actually holds her, and he forces her, he coerces her, and he violates her. He violates her, and uh, Tamar, of course, is deeply wounded, and then he throws her out of the room. She doesn't want to leave, and he has somebody else, one of his lads, who was assisting him to expel her from the house and to lock the door. Tamar did not hold the story quiet. Tamar felt that this was a shanda, besides her personal pain, first and foremost her personal pain. This was a horrific story, to the point that the Torah says that she tore the special garment that she had that demonstrated the fact that she wasn't even a kala yet. She tore it, she put ashes on her head, she mourned, she grieved for this. And David HaMelech heard about as he himself got very, very angry. This was his own son and his own daughter. To the point that an entire halacha was created at that time. The Gemara says, and the Rambam discusses this halachically, that the halachas of yichud between a man and a woman, even a single man and a single woman who are not married, that was instituted right then and there after the story of Tamar and Amna. As the Rambam explains, there's the prohibition of Yichud that already comes from Moshe Rabbeinu, Mipiyah Kabbalah, between people who are married, what's called Arayas, a relationship that would be forbidden, for example, a married woman, another, not from, obviously, not a, there's no Yichud with a person's wife, but we're talking about another wife, another husband. So over there, there is Yichud already, Mipi from Moshe Rabbeinu. But Yichud, the prohibition of Yichud, of being in one room, confined in one room between a, a Pnuya, which means a, a, a girl who's not married, so potentially they can get married. That was not biblically forbid, forbidden. But because of Tamar, they instituted this seeing the disastrous results that can happen when there are no boundaries maintained in any situation. And, and even, in such, even in such a situation where they were connected, they were family. Not only that, Tamar wanted to make this point. Chazal say Tamar wanted to make this point for people to see that even in the royalty even not just in royalty, quintessential royalty. David HaMelech wasn't a king by mistake. David HaMelech was the quintessential king. And Tamar wanted to show that even those families are not 
perfect. Believe it? Imagine. In other words, things can happen anywhere and everywhere. If people are not sensitive and aware of their weaknesses, of their temptations, of their traumas, of their difficulties and their challenges, and therefore one has to be able to be sober and realistic and authentic and moral. So Tamar said, if this happens to Benois, to Bas Melech, to a princess, to the daughter of Dovra Melech, imagine what can happen to a woman who's not so protected, a woman that comes from a different part of the nation, who doesn't have all this protection, who doesn't have this aristocracy and royalty around her. And that's when David HaMelech, the Bezdin, the Sanhedrin at the time, made this Isur Yichud. This prohibition of Yichud. The Tanakh continues to say that what happens afterwards, if you'll take a look, Pasuk Tesvav, Incredible Pasuk, sad Pasuk. Amnon hated her with tremendous hatred, and the hatred that he hated her with was greater than the love that he loved her with. What's the Pasuk trying to say? He was crazy about her. All he was thinking was about her. But after the story, his repulsion towards her, his negativity, his loathing, his disgust, was far profound. It wasn't just equal. You would say he had a crazy crush on her, and now he felt very negatively. No, it was much deeper much more powerful, much more potent than the love. And he told her, leave, leave, leave. And as I said before, he expelled her out of the house. Now we can understand the Mishnah. When the Mishnah wants to speak about love that is dependent on something, so the Mishnah says, what's a love that's dependent on something? And when that something ceases, the love also ceases. So the illustration is, Avas Amnon v'tamar. If you looked at it superficially in the beginning of the story, Amnon was so excited about Tamar, Day and night he was thinking about Tamar, he just wanted to be close to her. Not only that, he contrived the whole plot, the whole sly scheme, in order to be able to be alone with his half-sister Tamar. And yet, after it, was, after it happened, the love was gone. There was nothing left of it. Not only there was nothing left of it, so now they were neutral. On the contrary, it was replaced by terrible, terrible animosity, and hatred, no compassion for her, no empathy for her, and so forth. As the story continues, Avshalom, Avshalom did not say a word to Amnon. He kept it in his heart, and two years later, he had his brother assassinated. He had his brother invited to a party for shearing the sheep. You're looking at me, you never heard the story before? Okay, fine, I'm just asking. And he had his servants and his chevr to drink. And during the intoxication, he gave the code and they killed Amnon. So now Amnon was dead. This was Avshalom's revenge for what he did to Tamar. And it's interesting, Avshalom himself didn't drink because he was a Nazir. Avshalom was a Nazir, so he didn't drink wine. But he had other people drink and that's when they killed Amnon. As a result of this, Everything changed in the family dynamics. Avshalom ran away because he was scared his father is going to penalize him. So he ran away to his non-Jewish grandfather. You remember who his non-Jewish grandfather is? You weren't listening to the beginning of the class? Macha. You have to listen. You have to listen. Huh? Macha's father was Avshalom's grandfather. 
he wasn't Jewish, right? He was Talmi, the king of Kshur. So he ran away to his non-Jewish grandfather for years. And then David started to long for his son. He lost one son, Amnon, and now he had no another son who was now completely alienated from him. And David reached out to Avshalom, and Avshalom ultimately, upset at his father, would stage a rebellion to overthrow his father, kill his father, and he almost was successful. Avshalom made it into Jerusalem. He conquered the city, he conquered the palace, he did some disgusting things, Avshalom. And ultimately, David had to escape, and he himself was almost killed. But at the end, Avshalom was killed in that battle. He got stuck by the hair on the branch, and Avshalom himself was killed, and David could not come back to himself for a very long time after Avshalom's death. So at the end, Amnon was killed, and Avshalom was killed, both of these half-brothers, both at a very young age. So when the Mishnah wants to illustrate a love that is dependent on something, and therefore when that something is gone, it ceases, the example is Amnon and Tamar. Why? Because even though Amnon had this tremendous, intense emotion towards Tamar, it was really about one thing, and that is he wanted to then he wanted the enjoyment, the pleasure from Tamar, who, as the Tanakh says, was so uh, delightful. But essentially, when that thing was gone, in other words, he satisfied his desire, the love was gone. That's the first half of the Mishnah. What's the second half of the Mishnah? There's an Ava She'enet a love that is not dependent on anything. And because it's not dependent on anything, it never ceases. And who does the Mishnah use as an example to illustrate this type of love? We go back to the same family, but not the children. Now we talk about David himself, David and Yoinesen. David and Yoinesen was an unlikely friendship. Yoinesen, Jonathan Yoinesen was a son of the king, Shaul HaMelech. Shaul HaMelech allowed David to go kill Goliath, the Philistine, Goliath Aplishti, in the famous story in Shmuel. In, uh, where is it? In, uh, Shmuel Aleph Yudches. Shmuel Aleph Perig. This is in Shmuel Aleph. The story you probably learned, right? How David killed Goliath. Huh? Okay. And you remember when David comes home? When David comes home and he comes back to Shoal, and Shoal gets extremely upset how the women were dancing and singing about Shoal, how they were singing about David Amalek. He was comparing himself to David. But he Shoal Oyen is David. And Yahinison, Shoal's son, watches David. He sees him. He sees him talking to his father, Shoal, after the war against Goliath, where David HaMelech successfully managed to assassinate Goliath and bring peace and tranquility to the Jewish people. And David HaMelech and Yohannesson forge a tremendously profound friendship. And as we have in the next source, Shmuel, Aleph, Perik, Yudches, Vayikach, Aloysu, Ladaber, El Shoal, V'nefesh, Yohannesson, Nikshunah, B'nefesh, David, V'yeyeveyu, Yohannesson, K'nafsha. Amazing words. As Yonason watches David finishing the conversation with Shaul, this is after David managed to kill Goliath with his slingshot and the five little stones, the soul of Yonason becomes bound up with the soul of David. And Yonason loves him like he loves his own soul. He feels this profound love to him, literally like he loves himself. To the point that they create a covenant with each other. It's not just they're allowing on our emotion. They actually create a bris, a covenant with each other to consolidate and immortalize this love that they have towards each other because Yohannesson loves them like himself. Now this is an unlikely love. It's a love of two strangers to the point where it doesn't even make sense because Shaul is afraid of David as a potential competitor who's going to usurp the throne 
and ultimately dethrone Shaul and take over the Malucha. Not only that, Shaul is right. Because at some point, Hashem decides that Shaul should not be the king, and the new king is David HaMelech, and Shmuel HaNavi, who coronated Shaul, is sent to coronate David. And Shaul feels a lot of this. And Shaul tells this to Yohannesson. David is your enemy. You want to get rid of David. As long as David is here, you will never inherit my throne. He's actually right. So not only are they two strangers, but logically, Yohannesson should see in David a competitor. And even if for whatever reason in those days, it was not uncommon to kill such a person. But even if not, to turn him into your best friend would be unlikely. And yet... Yohannesson and David become the closest of friends. To the point that after Shaul is killed and Yohannesson are killed, you probably know this story, the end of Shmuel Aleph, they're both killed on the same day during the war with the Philistines. And when David HaMelech hears it, he gives one of the most moving eulogies in the whole of Tanakh, both for Shaul, the father, the king, who was also his father-in-law at some point, and Yohannesson, who was his best friend and also at some point his brother-in-law. And when he speaks there about Shoal in glorious terms, and he speaks there about Yonason in very emotional terms, and what he says there, and this is the beginning of Shmuel Beis, Shmuel Aleph is the story of Shoal, and it ends with Shoal's death, and Yonason's death. And Shmuel Beis goes on to the next generation. So the beginning of Shmuel Beis, Perik Aleph, is the eulogy of David for Yonason. And he says there, and I quote, you have it in the next source, Tsarli Alecha Achi Yohinasan, Naamtali Ma'id, Niflaisa Avas Khalime Avas Nashan. I am so distressed because of you, because of your death, my brother Yohinasan. Of course, he doesn't mean here a biological brother, they were not brothers. He means here his brother like his best friend. You have been so pleasant for me. You have been so sweet for me. Your love to me was so wondrous, even greater than the love of women, describing in such eloquent terms how deep the connection, the emotional relationship between David and Yohannesson were. So now, when the Mishnah wants to illustrate the second type of love, a love that's not dependent on anything, and therefore it never ceases, because even when that thing ceases, the love won't cease because it didn't come from that thing. The example for that is the altruistic love between David HaMelech and Yohannesson. David towards Yohannesson and Yonason towards David. So, it seems like the point of the Mishnah is very clear. Amnon loved Tamar, but he didn't really love Tamar. He loved himself. He wanted to use Tamar. Tamar was a tool to be exploited, to be manipulated, and that's exactly what he did. He violated her, he coerced her. This was not something where he really respected her as an individual and cherished her. He liked himself. In the humorous story they say about Rabbi Yisrael Salanta, the founder of the Musar movement, that he once saw somebody eating chicken with a lot of passion. And he asked the person, why do you eat the chicken with so much passion? And he says, I love the chicken. He said, I'm not sure you love the chicken. If you would have loved the chicken, would have you had the chicken slaughtered and then plucked and then cut into small pieces and then satayed or cooked or fried? You probably love yourself and your taste buds and your abdomen, and the chicken serves that purpose well. So when you say, I love the chicken, I'm not sure I love the chicken, I love me. person sometimes eats a piece of fish and says, ah, I love the fish, I love the fish. Really, if you love the fish, you should have put it in an aquarium <laughs> and built a beautiful castle around it and allowed it to swim through the aquarium and built a beautiful 
a pond or a lake for it. That's how you express your love to the fish. You love the fish by pulling it out of the water. So Rabbi Saul Salanta's point was that sometimes when somebody says, I love somebody, or I love something, it really is a way of saying, I love me, but it happens to be that I find some use in you which benefits me, and therefore the love is really just an expression of self-love. Versus a love that is an unconditional love, we call it today, unconditional, a transcendent love, an ava atzmis, it's called in the spiritual works, an ava So it seems to be that the message of the Mishnah is quite clear. But let's take it now one step deeper. There's a few questions here, when you come to think about and you reflect on this Mishnah. The first question is, what's the objective of the Mishnah? What's the point of the Mishnah? It's a very interesting observation about life. But Prikayavis is not just a work with observations about life or people's nature. It's a book of ethics. It's a book to teach people how to live. The Gemara, in fact, says in Babakama that man de boyle somebody who wants to live a pious life, somebody who wants to be a chassid, live with midas chassidus, which means with piety, with kindness, should learn Prikayavis. It's called mile de chassidusa. It's, it's messages of ethics to develop and cultivate a piety in a person. So the, the Mishnah here is describing two types of love. What is the Mishnah telling me? Is this a lesson for me? Am I supposed to go away from one type of love and go to another type of love? Can you even, can you even tell this to somebody? I mean, sometimes you have a love that's based on mutual benefit, because basically I want to get something out of it. And sometimes you have an altruistic love that's an unconditional love. Can you turn conditional love into unconditional love? <clears throat> So what is really the message The message of the Mishnah? It seems to be, it's a fact. Sometimes love is of this nature, and sometimes love is of this nature. What exactly is the Mishnah telling us? If the Mishnah is telling us a halacha, that you should never use somebody, you should never exploit somebody, that's a wonderful thing, but that's a halacha. There's many halachas about not harming somebody, and not being unfaithful to somebody, and certainly not being promiscuous, and not hurting somebody, and not creating a stumbling block in somebody's life, and not deceiving somebody, and not lying to somebody, etc., Another question is, what's the Kiddush of the Mishnah? What's the novelty of the Mishnah? As the Gemara often says, my kamashmala. It seems like it's a very obvious observation about life. If something is dependent on, if something exists, and its existence is dependent on something else, if that something else is gone, this will also be gone. I mean, if something is hanging on a nail, and the reason it's hanging, what's holding it up is the nail, obviously, if you take off, if take away the nail, the thing will fall. The Mishnah is saying, you should know that love that's based and dependent on something, if that something is not there, the love won't be there, yes. <laughs> if the love is coming because of that something, that's what's creating the love. If that something is not there, the love is not there. The Pirkeyavis seems to be teaching us a novelty in every Mishnah. What's the novelty that he's saying here? What's the Chiddush, the new idea, the new concept that I would have not known outside of Pirkeyavis? Which brings us to an even more basic question. When Pirkeyovus is looking to illustrate these two types of love, it goes back thousands of years. David HaMelech lived a few hundred years after the Jewish people came into the base, came into Eretz Yisrael. Shloyme built the base Hamikdash 440 years after they came into Eretz Yisrael. David HaMelech was Shloyme's father, so this is a few centuries after they come in. This is still, relatively speaking, a fresh nation, relatively speaking, a new nation. The Mishnah was written approximately... 150 years after the destruction of the second base Hamikdash. So between, between, between the time of David HaMelech, this story, and the writing of the Mishnah, you're talking about an enormous amount of years. Because you have the base Hamikdash that stood 410 years. 
Then there was the Babylonian exile. Then there was another 420 years of the second base Hamikdash. So you're talking about an era that's close to one millennium. Full a thousand years. And maybe a little more. So when the Mishnah wants to describe two types of love, the Mishnah says, Ben Etzel Mishnah, you're 10 years old when you learn Mishnayas. So it has to go back to stories that happened a thousand years ago. Somebody who had to learn through the whole Chumash and half and part of Tanakh to know what these stories are. But this is my Bechal This is stories every day. What's the difference between the love of a mother to a child and say the relationship between two partners who go into a business? What's the difference? Everybody knows the difference. Your child can reciprocate the love. Your child could not reciprocate the love. Your child may be <coughs> in one mode. Your child may be in a different mode of behavior. But there's certain love. There's a love in life that is innate. It's essential. It's intrinsic. And even if you have every reason in the world to say, why should I love? It's a love that comes without any conditions. You see it, Maisim Bechal this type of love of a parent to a child. Then you have other relationships. Somebody may invest a lot of money in my company. I really appreciate them. And I run after them. But there's a very simple reason why I run after them. I want them. No, I want their money. And we may have an amazing relationship. But the relationship, everybody understands, is based on mutual benefits. And if this person suddenly me, the person suddenly usurps and steals the company from me, what's going to happen? The love will turn into something else. I think you all know that these are stories that didn't happen a thousand years ago. This is how, how life works. He really has to go back to find a Misa with David and Yonason versus Amnon and Tamar, which is, as I said, a thousand years earlier. It's constantly every day. You have different types of loves. You have it in marriages, and you have it parents to children and children to parents, and you have brothers and sisters and family and partners and friendships. Everybody knows there were people you were probably, uh, I don't know about, the, I don't know everybody's story, but sometimes the situation is a person, you're a friend with them for many, many years, and then something happens, and the friendship is uh, canceled. What do they call it? Cancel? And even before cancel culture. <laughs> what happens? A lot of things can happen. Sometimes you feel the person did something very wrong to you. Maybe backstabbed, maybe manipulated, maybe exploited, maybe slandered, maybe behaved in a very inappropriate way, completely different than you. Be- it could be factors after factors. Sometimes within a family itself, people feel as they call in Yiddish ba'avolt. I feel a crime was done to me. Somebody feels very hurt and emotional, and a love that was so vibrant and powerful turns around. Unfortunately, it seems like the Mishnah is looking for an example. And it finds an example, and not from its day and age, but so much earlier. I want to share with you, the commentators here, there's a beautiful, beautiful interpretation of the Maharal. The Maharal of Prague, who lived in the 16th century, and the 17th century was the Rav of Prague, Rabbi Yehuda Leva of Prague is known as the Maharal. He has a commentary on Pirkei called Derech Chaim, the spirit of life. And he has there, a very long commentary on this Mishnah and on the following Mishnah afterwards explaining the connection between these two Mishnahs. The next Mishnah afterwards says any debate that is for the sake of heaven will endure and any debate that's not for the sake of heaven will not endure. 
And the Maharal connects the two Mishnas together because apparently what's the connection between the two? Here we're talking about love, here we're talking about debates. And the Maharal explains brilliantly that a debate for the sake of heaven is a debate that's based on love. It's based on truth. And therefore it's going to endure because anything that's based on truth endures forever because it's rooted in eternity. And a fight that's not based on truth ultimately will have to dissolve because the fight is coming from something that is ultimately not true and not rooted in reality, which explains at length. And there's going to be one piece from the Maharal that I want to share with you a little, a little later in the class. Because the commentators over the generations have a lot of different perspectives on this Mishnah. It's a short, brief, and fascinating Mishnah about the two loves. And there's different ways of looking at it. And I want to share with you an insight that was shared once by the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Shabbos Parshas B'chukhoisai, Mevarchim Sivan, Tavshin Lamed Gimel, 1973, and it was also that week, Perikei explaining this mission and answering these above questions. There's one more very interesting thing in the Mishnah. You have to understand that in Mishnah, every expression is precise. Words that are chosen are extremely meticulous. The word that the Mishnah keeps on using and contrasting is Avashi Tluya Bedavar versus Avashayna Tluya Bedavar. What's the literal translation? Tluya means hanging, hanging, suspended, or in English we would say dependent. A love that is hanging on something. It would be like you put a shirt hanging on a, on a, a hook. It's hanging on it, right? So you remove the hook, the shirt falls. Where is it going to hang? Can't, can't be suspended in a vacuum. The laws of gravity dictate that a shirt falls down. As long as there's a hook or a nail, it could be on the hook or on the hanger. You take away the hanger, you take away the hook, it falls. That's what tluya means. Tluya mean, literally means taluy, hanging. So it's an expression. Ava she tluya bedavar. Ava that is hanging on something, meaning it's dependent on something, it's leaning on something. If that something is gone, the ava is gone. Ava she'ena tluya bedavar means love that's not hanging on anything. But we would think that this is a little bit of a strange expression because the key difference between the two loves is What's the foundation of the love? Where did the love come from? Did the love grow out an ulterior motive? Did the love emerge from an ulterior motive? Or was the love born from a non-ulterior motive? For example, Amnon and Tamar, the foundation of the love was he wanted to enjoy himself. He wanted the physical pleasure of a connection, of a relationship with Tamar as the Tanakh says. So the love came from a selfish ulterior motive. This is what I want. And then there's another love, David and Yoinesen. It didn't come because David wanted to use Yoinesen. Yoinesen wanted to use David. David had money and Yoinesen wanted his money. David had something else and Yoinesen wanted it. David had personality and Yoinesen wanted to walk around with him or, or hang out with him because it made him look good. No. He actually loved David. And David loved Yoinesen not because he could manipulate him and exploit him and it'd give him it give him an entry into Shaul's palace and he would give him ideas and he would tell him secrets. That wasn't the reason. The reason is he actually loved Yonasa. So you would expect more accurate the Mishnah to say, Ava shehiba midavar, an Ava that comes from something, or noilda midavar, it's born from something, it stems from something, it emerges from something. So then if that something is gone, the Ava is gone. But the Mishnah uses a different word. The Mishnah uses the word tluya bedavar. It's hanging now on something. Even though you would think the Mishnah is trying to talk about the origin of the love. Did the love, does the love stem? Where was the love born? Take a mother to a child. Where is the love born from? 
What, where does that love originate? It originates in the fact that a mother thinks or a father thinks this child is going to grow up and he's going to support us. Of course we should love him. It's a good investment. <laughs> it's all selfish, right? Huh? doesn't work that way. First of all, he ain't supporting you. I'm <laughs> just joking. <laughs> so Zion let him support Bar Chava. I was just a joke. But the point is, <laughs> I don't know if the investment and the return are commensurate with each other. <laughs> I once overheard a conversation between a father and a daughter. The daughter was demanding a certain amount of money from the father. She was older and he was older. He says, first pay me back the $900,000 I paid for tuition (laughs) and for food and for shelter and for clothes and for everything else. And then we'll talk talk about what I owe you. If you're talking about investment and return, as Esther says, it doesn't really doesn't really match up. It doesn't cut it. So where's the, bo- the, 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 the love is, what is it born from? It's born from an essential relationship, an essential connection. Not because a calculation that this love is worth the investment because of something I want from you. Financially, physically, psychologically. It's an innate love. It's called an ava atmos. That's what you would think would describe it. What's the father of this love? What is the mother of this love? What is the progenitor of the love? Is it a dover? Is it an ulterior motive? Or is it any tluya Or it's not a dover? The language of the Mishnah is tluya bedover. If it's right now hanging on something. And the Mishnah uses this language because it actually expresses a more subtle message that the Mishnah is conveying. We asked before, what's the lesson? There's this love and there's that love. We asked a second question. What's the Kiddush? What's the Kiddush? We ask the third question, why do you have to find these old illustrations? But when we see the words Tluya Bedavra, we can now understand that the Mishnah is actually trying to convey something much more subtle. When a child is born from parents, there's a time that the child cannot survive without mommy. The child is in the womb of its mother for nine months. Even after birth, The child depends on its mother or primary caretaker for everything. For survival, for nurture, for food, and just to take care of all the needs of the child, whether it's a male or a female. But at some point we hope that every child becomes independent. (laughs) That's the hope. When you have birds in a nest, is the time that the chicks cannot fly. But when they acquire wings and a little courage, mommy bird sends them out of the nest. And sometimes... It takes a lot of courage when they have to take that first jump if the nest is very, very elevated. And it has to take that first jump. It's very scary. But without that, there's no continuity. And therefore, the mother bird will not be kind and compassionate and let them remain couch potatoes, watching television in the nest or playing video games or playing on the phone in the nest for eternity or whatever the equivalent of that is in birds' lives, watching clips, whatever they do over there. But at some point... Mommy bird is going to say, time is up, now it's time for you to forge ahead and create your own life. By them it takes a couple of weeks, a couple of months, by us it takes sometimes a couple of decades. But uh, that's the hope of a parent. So there's a difference between saying something comes from something and something is dependent on something. A child comes from father and mother. And without father and mother, there would never be a child. Without the seed 
fertilizing the egg and developing into an embryo that develops Bezer Hashem into a fetus and then is born as a child. Without that process, there could never be a child. But you hope that at some point, you don't have to say the child is dependent on the father and the mother. You hope one day, Bezer Hashem, shall have his that they can fend for themselves. They can grow up and both physically and psychologically and spiritually and morally and financially, people can make a life for themselves. And then other people can depend on them, their children, and then they could grow up. That's how the generations work. So when you say something comes from something, it doesn't mean it's now dependent on it. In fact, there comes a point where a child grows up and hopefully it's at a later point in life and they have to say goodbye to their father and mother. People don't live forever, and then they're alone in the world. But they're not alone in the world without a foundation. They have a foundation, and then they continue that, but now they have to be completely independent. It's not a situation where a person, you know, they tell an old anecdote about a man who went for a checkup for his doctor. The doctor checked him out. The doctor says, how old are you? He says, I'm 66. He says, you have the heart of a teenager. It's incredible. It's incredible. I would never think, I would think you're 16 years old. He says, amazing. How long did your father live for? He says, why do you think he's gone? He's alive. He says, how old is he? He's 91 and he still goes skiing. He goes skiing, yeah. And he stands in the store and he goes to the gym three times a week and he goes to the grocery store, he keeps the store open. He says, that's amazing, your genes must be blessed. How old was his father when he passed away? He says, why are you killing him? Who said his father died? His father is alive, he's 105 years old. And he also goes skiing. And he goes hiking three times a week. He's amazing. He says, and in fact, next week he's getting married. He said, he's getting married? Why would he get married when he's 104 years old? I mean, he says, he wants to get married. He says, who says he wants to? His mother is pressuring him. <laughs> so, we all hope for everybody's Arichis Yom and Vishanim Taivas. or like Yitzchak, Yitzchak. But even with Arichis Yom and Vishanim Taivas of parents, there comes a point where you want a child, a young man and woman, an older man and woman, to take responsibility. So you're not totally bedover. And that's really the ultimate pleasure of a teacher is not just to create students who are always dependent, but to create people who are independent, to give them the wings to fly. And that's the ultimate delight of a mother and a father, not just to create children who are always dependent on me. Mommy, how do you make an egg? Come over, I'll make it for you. But rather, a person who can take initiative, can be creative, can be independent. As the Mishnah says, Talmud HaMachkimus Rabbi. You have the student who actually brings more wisdom even to the teacher. The Gemara says in Tainus that they used to say, somebody used to say, I learned a lot from my teachers, more from my friends, but from my students I learned more than anybody else. Here the student adds to the teacher, and then the student goes on himself or herself to become a teacher. If the Mishnah would have said, it means love that came from something. But now it's not necessarily dependent on it. means right now, in the present. Not it used to be. Right now the Ava is hanging on this thing. It's right now dependent on something. We're not talking about where it came from. It's two separate realities. The love could come from one place, but now it's in a different place. The love could come from a different place and now it's in a different place. 
And that's the precision in the words of the Mishnah. We're talking about what's happening right now with the love. Sheitluya bedava right now is dependent on something. To appreciate the subtlety of what the Mishnah is trying to say, it gives an example of Amnon and Tamar. The Mishnah is not just describing two types of love. There's a love that's selfish. I don't care about you, I care about me. And all I want is to use you for my benefit. And of course, the moment I get the benefit, I'm done. Or the moment I see you can't give me those benefits, I don't need you anymore. I never wanted you, I wanted me. As long as you can help me, good. If not, not. I don't need the Mishnah for this. It's a very simple distinction. And you don't have to go back to Amnon and Tamar. It happens every single day. Sometimes politicians develop deep relationships with people. What are the relationships based on? The politician loves you. Huh? And you have, I'm not only talking about politicians, I'm talking about the politician in each person. In each person there's a politician. Not people here, but generally in people there's a politician inside of me. Have a Zahir in Bereshus, it says in Pekayavas, be careful with politicians. Comes the Mishnah and says, let's talk about Amnon and Tamar. Where did the love of Amnon and Tamar originate? Not where it was now when the story happened. Where did it come from? Where was it born? And the answer is, they were actually brothers and sisters. Amnon and Tamar were not strangers. It's not Amnon had a crush on a woman that he never saw before, that he never knew. This was his sister. Half a sister, but a sister. They had the same father, David HaMelech. They grew up with the greatest poet of the Jewish people, with one of the greatest uh, holy men of the Jewish people, David's house. So where was the love between Amnon and Tamar born? Where did it originate where did it stem from? It stemmed from the fact that they were a brother and a sister. The relationship between a brother and a sister is innate. It's intrinsic. Why do I love my sister? Why does a sister love a brother? Why does a brother love a sister? Why do brothers love each other? That's an example of a love that's not based on selfishness. It's based on an intrinsic connection. A brother and a sister, they share they share genetic codes. They share parents, or at least a parent in this case. They grew up together. They're deeply connected. Physically they're connected. Biologically they're connected. Genetically connect- they're connected. And therefore emotionally they're connected and spiritually they're connected. So Amnon and Tamar essentially, their love is not born out of selfishness. Their love is born where? It's born in altruism. It's born in the deepest connection that God created in this world, which is family relationships. Family. Family is, as we call it, it's a blood connection. It's my brother, it's my sister. And you can't get rid of a brother and a sister. You can't divorce a brother and a sister. You may have issues with your brother and a sister. But your brother remains a brother and a sister remains a sister. Because you are essentially connected. That's where the relationship began. That's where it emerged. That's the progenitor of this connection was an innate one. And yet, it was distorted. At some point, Amnon could not see Tamar as just his sister. Suddenly she became an object. She became an object of his desire. This is the tragedy of Amnon and Tamar. It was capable, the relationship was capable of so much more. This is a brother and a sister. You could really love each other. You could really be here for each other. But in the process of life, glorious relationships can be distorted. And they can be exploited. 
And what happens is that natural, organic, innate, intrinsic, powerful, selfless relationship is eclipsed. It's buried. It's sometimes buried deep, deep down in the ground. Because family is an ahava atzmas. The love of family, the way it was designed by the Bairi Yolam, is an unconditional love. Like parents love children unconditionally, children love parents, brothers love sisters, sisters love brothers. There is an intrinsic love. Lahavdil, even in the animal kingdom you have it. And you have it sometimes to the point of death. I once saw a video in one of the deserts, there was a group of herd of elephants. And there was a terrible, terrible drought. So they were walking for days and they couldn't find water and they couldn't find food. They couldn't even eat the branches because they were completely dried up. And at some point there's an elephant calf that can't continue anymore. The mother could still continue, but the calf can't. And you see the mother debating what should she do. The calf has to stay here. And if she stays with the calf, she stays away from the herd, which also is less chances for her to be able to find her source of nourishment. And she also can fall prey, even though she's big, but she's one alone. You need a herd to protect. Or she should abandon her calf, who has no hope, to be with the herd and save her own life. And you see literally her debating the decision, and then she decides to stay with the calf. And she stays there with the calf until the calf dies. So you have this concept even in the animal kingdom. It's not because of a whole cheshbin and philosophy and theology. This is one of the deepest instincts that God created in family, even when they have it in the animal kingdom, this loyalty and this dedication, which transcends personal benefit. It's as powerful as self-love. That's the nature of family love. But what the Mishnah is saying is, sometimes in the process of life, that can be eclipsed. And the chitzainius can overwhelm the panimius. The physical pleasure that he wanted and the crush that he had on Tamar completely overwhelmed and drowned out and suppressed the intrinsic natural love that a brother would have for a sister until it was gone, or completely invisible at least. That's why the words is Ava If you would ask, where was the Ava born? It should have said, as we said, a love that comes from something. If that thing is gone, the love is gone. No, something could come from something, but now it's independent. Amnon and Tamar's love didn't come from something selfish. It came actually from something non-selfish. It was It came because of their family. But now, it got distorted and it became Tluya Bedavar. Now it was hanging on this something, even though originally it stemmed from an innate intrinsic connection, but now it was dependent on what? Dependent on her fulfilling his physical desires and needs. That's why the Mishnah uses the word dependent, rather than comes from. Because this love is actually based on non-ulterior motives. It originates in a pure bond, but it's been downgraded. It's been degraded, it's been defamed. Now, now, Tluya, now it's dependent on an ulterior motive. When they were little children, when Amran and Tamar were little children, it was very not selfish. It was very authentic. So don't think, says the Mishnah, and this is a very profound lesson, that just because all of your children are siblings, they will automatically 
love each other unconditionally forever. There's a very profound lesson here. Don't think just because these are your children, the bond between them is secured for eternity. What can go wrong? This love wasn't born in selfishness. It's not like brothers become connected because they invest in each other's companies. I love my sister because she gave me money at a certain point or she gave me something else I needed. The love is, is unconditional. The love is as altruistic as love can be in this world. Comes the Mishnah and says, you have to realize what's happening now with the love. Even the purest of bonds have to be nurtured. They have to be cultivated. They have to be given oxygen. They have to be fed. They have to be replenished. They have to be expressed. They have to be focused on. We have to create environments and opportunities where that love can, can blossom, can flourish. Certainly not create situations that choke that love. Because if not, the love may be there, but it's very hidden and it won't manifest in daily life. Maybe in a time of crisis it will come out. A brother will be there for a brother, a sister will be there for a sister. But that's not how you want family love to function in a time of crisis. Suddenly I remember that you're my sister. So parents and children have to work on their relationships. Siblings have to work on their relationships. We can't rely on the essential spark of affection that can unite them forever if that spark is not fanned into a flame. It can even be true with parents and children. The love of a father to a child is not (laughs) self-centered. The love of a mother to a child is not self-centered. It wasn't born based on something. It's not avar shabar midavar. It doesn't come from something. It's essential. But sometimes... Things can happen in the process. Sometimes a father or a mother have so much expectations from a child. Child becomes sometimes a nachas machine. And in that process, something very sad happens. In the name of unconditional love, suddenly the love turns conditional. And if you come home in a different fashion or in a different dress or with different... Words coming out of your mouth. That love, I'm not going to say is gone. I don't think it's ever gone. But it's eclipsed. This father himself knows that the love is unconditional. But the pain of disappointment, which also comes from love, because this is my child. If I didn't care, I didn't care. You know, sometimes you have somebody else's child that you're home for Shabbos, and you find them so cute. And even though they're struggling, you're going to call their mother afterwards and say, your son is so delicious. But if it would be your own child, chas shalom, cute. Because sometimes it's easier to see the beauty in another person's child. And you call the mother and you say, wow, what a treasure. (laughs) It's sometimes hard to be able to see that because of the love. So what happens is a love that originates in so much idealism and so much selflessness, without even realizing it, we allow that love to become tarnished and tainted. And it loses its purity because now it comes with a lot of strings attached. And the pain of the father and the mother often manage to eclipse and repress the love. And they sometimes feel less love than they felt to this person as a child, to this young adult as a child. Why? 
because a lot of things happened and those events take the love out of a pure unconditional state and they put them into a conditional state. Sometimes there could be even a situation where fathers and mothers don't get upset at me, but I've heard this from people who wish that their children are gone. That's how much pain they cause them. It's like you're ruining our family. You're ruining our lives. What happened to the love? Because the love was so intense, the pain is so intense, my emotional reaction is this is all now a situation where you're actually damaging and destroying my life and the same depth of love is now translated into deep negative emotions and feelings. And the parents have to go through a detox and a serious, humble journey to be able to ask, where does this love come from? Where does the pain come from? Does the pain not come from your unconditional love? Can you go back to that place? Because only when you go back to that place will you actually be able to be here for this child in the way that they need it. Because the child needs that love more than anything else. The child needs that connection more than anything else. The child needs that attachment more than anything else. The child needs that pride more than anything else. So the Mishnah is telling us something very deep. Look what happened to Amnon and Tamar. This is not just an everyday example. It's an example of a brother and a sister whose relationship went so sour that after she couldn't, after she fulfilled his needs, after he coerced her, now he hates her completely, can't even look at her. I should also add the Gemara in Sanhedrin does say that during them being together, he was wounded. And that's why he hated her even more. In other words, it affected also his own body. I'm just mentioning that for the complete picture. Now the Mishnah says something even more interesting. Now look at the second half. David and Yoinus. Where did their love stem from? How did their love begin? They were not brothers. They were not family. They were two strangers. Completely strangers. They came from different Shvatim. David came from Shevet Yehuda. Yonason came from Shal, from Shevet Binyamin. They didn't even grow up together <laughs> as childhood friends. They were complete strangers. In one day, you can't suddenly meet somebody, and now you're connected unconditionally, innately. It doesn't happen that way. There's a process. They got to know each other. He saw him speak to his father. He saw David speak to his father. He felt connected to him. He liked him. You don't start with love the first second. How, how do you start with love? You first like. <laughs> and the liking develops more intense. And then there's love. And then they loved each other to the point that Yonason saw David Amalek like he saw himself. I love you as much as I love myself. So here the Mishnah is saying something even deeper. Ava she'ena tluya bedavar. It's an Ava that now is not dependent on something. How did it begin? It actually began in a way that was not altruistic. You can't begin a relationship with a best friend in the first five minutes. It's altruistic. It's completely selfish. Really? How exactly does it happen? You first have to get to know the person. You first have to appreciate the person. And when they say, I appreciate the person, it means I appreciate you. Yes, it's about me. I appreciate your love, your kindness, your wisdom, your depth, your humor, your honesty, your candidness, your, <coughs> your gestalt, your weltanschauung, your perspective, whatever it is, your neshama, your heart. Which is about me. I'm appreciating it. I like this person. I really enjoy being in the presence of the person. 
So where does the love begin? It begins in self-interest, like every nice friendship. But suddenly, not suddenly, over the, in the process of life, what happens? That very love turns into something absolutely splendid, where the two become inseparable. Now it's not dependent on anything. It matured, it morphed into something unshakable into a bond that's immutable. You see the contrast? Amnon and Tamar began as what? As the most altruistic, beautiful love in the world family, and yet not cultivated, not nurtured, not focused on. It developed into an absolutely narcissistic love, which morphed into Amnon's hate to Tamar. David and Yonason is the example of the exact opposite. It begins as two people who are separate. They don't have intrinsic love, nor should they. They're two separate people. They have to get to know each other. And even after you get to know somebody, so I like you, so let's spend time together. So we'll schmooze. So we'll go on a hike. So we'll go shopping. So we'll go for a coffee. (laughs) From there to altruistic, unconditional love that can't be threatened and undermined by anything, even by your own father telling you, he's your enemy. You either love me or you love him. Shaul told you innocent. Ben Navas Hamardusata. You're a foolish, rebellious kid for loving Yonis and he's going to kill you. His own father is against it. That takes a lot. And it wasn't a regular father, it was Sholem Melech. It's Melech Yisrael, Mashiach Hashem. He's called Mashiach Hashem. He had to disobey his father. And yet without going out against his father, he respected his father too. How unlikely was this bond? It didn't make sense. And yet it happened. So if you talk about its origin, where did it come from? It came from a regular relationship of two people who may get to know each other for personal interests. But it morphed into an ava that now ain't a It became so strong that nothing could actually undermine it. Even Yonason losing his throne to David, he told David HaMelech, you be the king and I'll be your assistant. <laughs> Which means he was ready to give up everything for this friendship. That's how much he loved, he loved David. David's success did not undermine him. On the contrary, he celebrated David's success, besides saving him time and time and time again from his father's wrath. So what does this teach us? This teaches the opposite direct. Just like the first one teaches us. Don't just trust that family relationships will live on forever if they're not cultivated. Even parents and children, you have to work on the relationship. Because sometimes the pain of life can distort the essential bond. It could. It's sad, but it could. There have been children that their father told them, you're not my child anymore. And there's the father that a child said, you're not my father anymore. It's not that there's no unconditional love. There is. But it's been so covered up with so much pain and resentment and disappointment, that that literally, it drowns, it drowns the emotions that are there. It may come up in 50 years, you never know. I was two weeks ago at Kesher Nafshi Shabbaton for parents who deal with struggling children. So Mitzay Shabbos, a fellow pulled up to the parking lot, and his parents were actually there at the Shabbaton, and we spoke for two hours. And he told me, he grew up in a very wonderful community in New York, a beautiful community, a very, very religious community. 
And he told me that one day, he was 17 years old, he came back from Israel, and uh, he went through a lot in his life, and he came home, it was Friday night, and he was dressed in a, uh, those motorcycle jackets, what are they called? Uh, you know those leather leather jackets? With, huh? One of those, with jeans. And he came in Friday night to the meal, and he told me his father looked at him and he said, Du kleine Nazi Geadeus für mein Stib. You little Nazi, get out of my house. And he told me, I looked at my father and I said, Vartati, bizichel zich uvaksen, und de kleine Nazi wird werden a große Nazi. Wait till I grow up a little more. He was 17 already, and the little Nazi will become a big Nazi. And he ran out of the house. His mother actually chased him, but to no avail. He left the house, the relationship was cut off. The parents went through a metamorphosis, a complete metamorphosis. It took a few years. To the point that at some point, the child told his father and mother, I would have killed myself long ago. The only reason I don't is because of you. Because of your love towards me. But that took such a metamorphosis in the parent's life and a complete humility. I finished speaking to the child. I went back in and I met the father later in the middle of the night. She says, what did you speak about with my son for two hours? I said, he shared with me some some life experiences. So he said, I'm just going to tell you one experience. And he told me about the story. (laughs) So I knew the father and the son both shared the same story. But it demonstrates to you what can happen even to the most beautiful of relationships in the world, which is the relationship between parents and children and children and parents, and certainly siblings. You see sometimes families, they get into such fights. Brothers don't talk to each other. Sisters don't talk to each other. Sister doesn't talk to her brother. There's really unconditional love there, like Amnon and Tamar. But the Mishnah is saying, guard it, be careful, protect it. It comes from altruism. But right now, the relationship may be completely skin deep because it's dependent on something and something external. And that's what's the lo- that's where the love is right now. And if that's not happening, the love can turn into hate. Now we have the opposite message. Sometimes you have two people, they're not supposed to love each other this way. In fact, they have every reason not to love each other this way. And it doesn't start off this way. In fact, I would be very suspicious. If somebody would come over to me and say, Rabbi, why am I meeting you now for the first time? (laughs) And I want to tell you, I love you unconditionally like I love myself. I never met you. I don't know you. From vos, from vuven. Sounds a little strange, right? A relationship develops. A relationship takes root. It's like a tree. You don't just plant the seed as a tree. It takes root, it grows slowly, and then one day it's a splendid tree. David and Yonis, and it didn't happen in five seconds. It developed. But it developed this way. What is the Mishnah telling us? It may be born in a very normal relationship that's based on self-interest. I appreciate this person. And yet, that may morph into something that is absolutely magical and glorious. And the example for that would be a marriage. And that's why this mission is so important. Because a husband and a wife didn't grow up in one home. <laughs> right? If they grew up in one home, usually they shouldn't marry each other. Amnon and Tamar were an exception where they were allowed to marry each other, but that's not the norm. So essentially they're strangers. The Maharal even writes, why did Hashem make that marriage shouldn't be within a family? Kayin, 
and Hevel married their sisters. There was nobody else. But today it's forbidden. It's one of the Arayas. It's promiscuous. And the Maral says because the purpose of marriage was to unite all of the world. So you want the pool gene actually to expand. You want cross-pollination. So even though you would think logically it makes sense, a brother and a sister, the same as Shagasan, they grew up with the same dysfunctional, uh, I don't want to say that, the same dysfunctional maizalach. They know each other, they don't have to date, they know everything, menafesh keshatchen. Yeah, it's very tzniyazdik, the date can be at the house during supper. So we know genetically it could be a problem, but the Maral says Hashem could have made a system like that. He says he didn't want to, because the wedding is trying to bring out unity between people who are different. They come from different homes, different families. The question is, can they unite and to what degree? No date begins, you get into the car or however you do it, Wow, this love is unconditional. Really? Maybe let's get to know each other. Maybe you have some situations, I don't know, in novels or some fictional situations, maybe two, three in a generation, they call it love at first sight. I had a classmate in yeshiva, and he told me that when he uh, drove up to the house of his future kala, and she came down the steps, he already knew he's marrying her, and he didn't even have to take her on the date. I said, why did you? <laughs> he said, because everybody else would have thought I'm a Meshuggah. He said, she didn't even have to come into the car. I'm like, really? And he says, really? And he meant it. I said, so what do you do at the first date? Nothing. She knew, I knew it was just for everybody else. So I said, so after that? He said, we had to go on one more date so they shouldn't say that we're both crackpots. So we went on one more, and that was chasal to the pesa. They talk of a beautiful marriage. So you have sometimes on the kuda, you know, people have that, but as you know, it's not the usual, and it's not doesn't have to be the usual because you have to you have two people get to know each other, and the focus is what am I experiencing with this person? Am I experiencing joy? Am I experiencing delight? Am I experiencing serenity? Are you comfortable with the person? Could you be open and honest with the person? Is this the person you would like to go on the hike we call life? That's what you want to know. And you could say, oh, it's about self-interest. Do I feel comfortable? Yes. (laughs) If not, you can marry a tissue box if there's no self-interest. Okay, not a tissue box, a lemon. An esrig. My sister-in-law told me she had a Kala teacher. The Kala teacher was a very blunt woman. She's already on the Isle of Miamis. So she's talking to like, this is the old days, the early 80s. So she's talking like to 100 girls or 50 girls. You know, then the Kala lessons, yeah? And she says, girls, I'm going to be very honest with you. A certain amount of you will realize that you did end up with a lemon. That was it. But for those of you who didn't end up with a lemon, let me tell you the rules. Okay, that's one way of introducing the concept. <laughs> As long as you're left guessing 40 years later, if you're the one who ended up with a lemon, you're good. The tragedy is if it's not, if it's not a guessing game anymore. Why can't it begin right away with altruistic love? Because if a person doesn't feel safe in a relationship, it will never be able to get to the next level. I would love it to get to the next level, but if I'm not feeling safe in a relationship, if my inner child is scared in the relationship... We could never reach that space 
of complete oneness because I could never really let down my defensives. I could never really let down my guards. You understand what I'm saying? And this is where one person has to be self-aware of their blockages or what some people call today traumas. Because those blockages often prevent a person from feeling safe. I may never feel safe with anybody else. I can't because of certain internal realities in my brain. And therefore I'm always defensive. If a person hasn't experienced healthy attachment as a child, it's very hard to experience healthy attachment as an adult. If a person experiences what they call anxious attachment, meaning my attachments were there and not there, and they were never predictable and they were never safe, that's the type of attachment I experience as an adult. If a person experienced avoidant attachment, which means I had to avoid attachment in order to stay safe, that's what I'm going to experience as an adult. And if that's what's happening, it's beautiful to speak about altruistic love where there's no self. But the problem is the self is wounded and that wound itself is going to come back to haunt me and is going to imagine that there's a lion in the room or a tiger in the room threatening this relationship. So I have to work through my inner voices to be able to allow myself to reach a point of this type of seamless oneness. But what he's saying about David and Yonason is they were worked out people. And that's why at the eulogy he says, Tzarli alecha ochi yoinasen, na'amtali ma'oid nifleisa avoschali me'avas noshem. There's the love, the maral says, there's the natural love Hashem put into the world between man and woman. David says about yoinasen it was even deeper. It had to be really worked out through and through to the point that David and yoinasen trusted each other where nothing could shake their bond, even though it didn't start that way. And that's what the mission is telling us. It may not start that way. Like in a husband and wife. They start as two separate people, but it could develop into that type of relationship. On the other hand, you have a mother and a child, or a father and a child, or a brother and a sister. It started that way, and it can end off not that way. And this dual lesson is extremely profound in life. Somebody once sent me an email, a nurse. A nurse wrote this. I don't know if he got it from the nurse or got it from somebody else. A few years ago, a nurse wrote that it was 8.30 in the morning and a man came into the office, an elderly man. He was in his high 80s. And he had their appointment. He had to draw blood for something, whatever he came for. And he asked her if she could rush up the process. She said, why? He says, I have an appointment at 9. So she brought him into the office and she did what she had to do. And then she said, were you going at 9? Were you rushing at 9? He says, every day at 9 I have breakfast with my wife. She's like, wow, how long are you doing this? He's doing this. He says, you know. Since before uh, Roosevelt's days. She's like, uh, so your wife waits at home? She says, no, his wife is in a, a home for us, a home of assisted living, an old age home. And, uh, and how is she feeling? He says, unfortunately, till a few months ago, she was much better, but now Alzheimer's has really gotten to her. So the nurse says, does she recognize you? So he sighs and he says... Until a few weeks ago, she still recognized me, but now she, uh, she doesn't know me anymore. The nurse says, you still go and have breakfast every day with her at 9 o'clock a.m.? He says, yeah, every day. The nurse says, but why? She doesn't know you. He says, she doesn't know me, but I know her. So you can have a relationship that morphs into that type of loyalty, that type of trust, that type of oneness, that type of dedication. Now, here we come to the next step. This mission is also a metaphor 
not as a metaphor, the Mishnah is also a mirror, a mirror is better, of our relationship with Hashem. And here we come to the beautiful interpretation of the Maharal. If you take a look in the Maharal, the last source, Chaim La Maharal, he says, I'm going to read this fast, these are absolutely splendid words that every Jew has to know. This is also a message for the Jewish people for eternity, even in exile. They should never ever think that the love of Hashem towards them can ever cease. Because the love is not dependent on anything. It was never created because of an ulterior benefit. And therefore, it's not tluya bedavar. The ava could never cease. Some people think that the love of Hashem towards me or towards the Jewish people is dependent on something. It's conditional. If you give me nachas, I like you. If not, get out. The Maral says it's a fundamental error in what a Jew is. And with this he explains something extraordinary. Fascinating question of the Ramban. Whenever the Torah introduces a new character who's about to fulfill a major role, it gives us a little intro. Why was he chosen? For example, the world is evil. God says, I'm destroying the world. And he tells Noyach, you build an ark and you will save civilization. And the question is, why Noyach? Why Noyach? Why not Shmedel? So the Torah says, Noyach was a good man. He wasn't corrupt. So Hashem told Noyach, you're a good man, therefore you're going to be saved. You and your wife and your children and their wives. The Torah introduces Moshe Rabbeinu. God chooses Moshe. Why Moshe? What? Where? When? The answer is, he tells first who Moshe was, who his father was, where he came from, how he was born, where he was raised, how he saved an Egypt Jew from death, he saved another Jew, he saved the, the, the daughters of Yisra. There's some intro to learn about him. The, God shows the Kayanim. Why? Where? From when? Tells the story that in the, during the golden calf, the Levim, the Shevet Levi didn't worship. There's one exception, Avram Avinu. There's not a single word in Chumash, some bio. Some biographical, even a sentence. Something about Avram. You ever notice that? It's fascinating. Give an intro. Say one word. Avram was a tzaddik. Avram was a good man. Avram believed in God. Avram looked for truth. Nothing. It says there was a man named Terach. He had three sons, Nachar, Avram, and Haran. God told Avram, I'm turning you into the great nation. Everybody's going to be blessed from you. All the nations are going to be blessed from you. I'm going to create you. You're going to become my people. I'll give you this land. Why? What? When? Where? Give me an intro. Tell me something about him. It's not like there was nothing to say. There was so much to say about Noyachian, Avram, not a word. 
This is a fascinating question of the Ramban. When you learn Chumash, you're supposed to ask these questions. The problem is we're taught too much what to think, so we stop thinking. You know when people are taught what to think, so they stop thinking. These are, this is a very powerful question. You read Chumash, why is there no word about Avram? So the Maharal's answer is incredible. What's the Maharal's answer? Listen to this. Upirashnu Atam, the reason is as follows. Avram Uroshi Chaseinu. Avram is the first Jew. Everything begins with Avram. Unbelievable explanation. If the Torah would have given an intro about Avram and say he was righteous, he was amazing, he was moral, he was sensitive. He sacrificed his life for truth. All true things. What would you imagine? That's why God chose him. So if you have a Jew in the future who's missing these qualities, the choice is gone. I chose you because you're spiritually beautiful. You're amazing. You're incredible. Of course I should choose you. Now you have a Jew. He's a rotten potato. He's a rotten tomato. Done. Noyach. I have to know why. Everybody else. Avram Avinu, said you would get the wrong picture. You would misunderstand what a Jew is and what the relationship between Hashem and a Jew is. You would think Avram was chosen, of course. He's spiritually gorgeous. He's spiritually handsome. He's so wholesome. He's amazing. Which is true. Avram was Avram Avinu. Chazal tell us a lot of stories about Avram Avinu. The story with the furnace, with the fiery furnace, but it's not in Chumash. Because the Maharal said, you would think Hashem chose Avram and his children, the first Jew, because of his tzitkos, because of his righteousness, because of his goodness, because of his purity. In other words, the love is dependent on something. You give me nachas, I love you. You please me, I love you. You're so filled with light. How can I not love you? Of course I love you. And now when you have a Jewish child, you have your son or your daughter who's not displaying that light, you're not a Jew, Bistagoy. What's there to choose? So the love is gone. That's why he says, the Torah says not a word. So why did he choose Avram? He says he didn't choose Avram because of anything he did or because of any certain behavior or attitude, he says he chose Avram and his children mitzad atzmam, their very core, their very essence, and the essence could never cease. I love you because of you at your core. Sometimes he may display the light, sometimes he may not display the light. Sometimes the behavior may less than wanting. Sometimes it may even be disappointing, and sometimes it may be painful. But why does, again, why a mother loves a child, why I love you, Why? Because the way you look, because the way you dress, because the way you behave. Sometimes it could become that and that's painful, says the Maharal. No, the Mishnah is trying to say, There's nothing that could nullify the love. Because the love was not created from something reciprocal. It's essential. It's who you are in your innate. Even if you decide you're not my child, you're still my child. 
As the Gemara says, Even if they say, I'm not interested in God, they're still my child. The Medrash says in Rus, I can't substitute you for something else. I can't make believe you're not me. You're not one with me. And the Maral finishes, I already explained this elsewhere. He means in the Sefer Teferis Yisrael, Aleph, I think. Because this is true testimony. The Maral is saying what I'm saying here is true testimony about what a Jew is. I don't have to elaborate more. So the Maral now takes this whole Mishnah and applies it spiritually to the relationship between a Jew and Hashem that it's Ava, She'enet Luyibedavar. So here too, we have now this duality that we spoke about. The same duality that we spoke about. We spoke about David and Yonason, two people who start off a relationship that essentially seems like just two strangers, and yet it morphs in to something essential. We have the relationship of Amnon and Tamar that starts off so close and so essential, and yet it's distorted by selfishness, by narcissism, by temptation, by ulterior motives that don't allow anymore for Amnon to see Tamar for who she is. A wonderful young person, a special young person, and your own sister for heaven's sake. Even any girl, but your own sister. So you should just care for her and respect her as a separate, as an independent person even more. But he can't do that. And here we have in the same thing in our relationship with Hashem. The Gemara says in Psachim, a person should always learn Torah or observe mitzvahs. Even for ulterior motives. Because from that you come to a place of lishma. So there's a beautiful interpretation. The inside of the shaloy lishma. If you go deeper into the shaloy lishma, you will already see the lishma. In other words, you don't have to worry. The relationship between the Jew and Hashem is innate. It's intrinsic. So even if it starts off as an Ava Hatluya Bedavar, like David, as an Ava Bedavar, like David and Yonison, it starts off, a person is doing a mitzvah, and it seems to be my motives are less than very idealistic. Don't worry about it. Because the taich, inside, the relationship is as powerful as it gets. You have to get to know each other. Fine, start that way. And as you get to know each other, you'll be able to trust the relationship until it will be able to become the most powerful relationship in the world. You never have to underestimate it. You never have to delegitimize it. I don't have the right motives. I don't have the right idealism. It's selfish. It's like somebody saying, I can't get married to this man or to this woman because I enjoy them too much. My ego is too much involved. Baruch Hashem Nishkeferlech. It should be the worst course. If it's good, if it's safe, that will allow you to go much deeper. Because at the core, the person is not narcissistic. At the core, the relationship with Hashem is very powerful. But it has to begin in a place, sometimes it begins in a place where the person wants to feel safe and good about it. And it gives me satisfaction, whatever that satisfaction is. But the toich of the shaloy lishma is already lishma. You could trust it. And therefore, every mitzvah, every good deed, all of Torah and all of mitzvahs, even if the person says, this motive, that motive, that's fine. Chazal say it's perfectly fine. There's a process of growth. You also have to remember the other side. The other side is sometimes a person's relationship is very, very deep. And a person's relationship with Hashem is very, very deep. But a person cannot just rely on that because if I don't cultivate it and I don't work on it, it can end up becoming distorted and now the relationship becomes about my comfort. 
What does this mean in a person's life? Sometimes a person's relationship with Hashem becomes extremely conditional. Instead of asking what I can do for God, it becomes what God can do for me. And the relationship is a very, very superficial one. Like with children. When the parent starts, stops, stops thinking, what can I do for my child? And the only question is, what can my child do for me? You're giving me nachas or you're not giving me nachas? If you're not giving me nachas, I can't have a relationship with you. We're in a real relationship. I want to ask the question, what can I do for you? Oh, yes, I have to be safe to be able to ask that question. If I feel a person is abusing me, I'm not going to be able to ask that question. If I feel safe, I want to ask that question. With a Jew's relationship with Hashem, there could be a relationship that's very skin deep. It's like, what can you do for me? What's the reward you're going to give me? I want more reward, more reward, more reward, more reward. Okay, beautiful. But the ultimate relationship is, ask not. Only what you can do for me, what can I do for you? Sometimes the journey of life takes me to places that maybe I didn't think about, I didn't expect, I didn't dream. But if the relationship is deep, this is where my real eye is going to emerge because this is who I really am. A real relationship with Hashem means that that's who you are. You're not separate. You're completely one. Like it says, a husband and a wife are really two halves of one soul. Plag gufa, two halves. We're two halves. Hashem says, Asei lecha shtei chatzoitzris. So the Magad says, shtei chatzoitzris is shtei chatzoitzuris. Hashem and the Jew are like two half forms. And together, like machzis hashekel, it becomes one form. You're a partner with Hashem, the Gemara says in Shabbos, Kufiotas. You're a partner. Two partners that become one. So I am his ambassador, I am his manifestation, I am his facilitator in this world. It's not separate. That's what it means, the love is not two separate beings, we're completely one. So sometimes he sends me on this journey to fulfill this particular mission. It's not about, but what are you doing, what are you doing for me God? You are me, we're completely one. I trust you, you trust me, together we'll repair the world. That's a whole different attitude. It can't always begin in that space. A person first has to be able to feel safety in the relationship. A person has to be able to feel comfort in the relationship. That's why but that's the toich of the shaloylishma. So even when a person is in a place of shaloylishma, they should never delegitimize it or delegitimize others because there's a growth process and that's perfectly fine. On the other hand, a person should not say, I'm an Eved Hashem, we are intrinsically connected. That's true. But if I don't work on it and I don't refine myself, sometimes I could fall into a trap where it becomes about my ego. Like Amnon and Tamar, where it becomes about my comfort zone. <laughs> the love is there only if I'm getting what I need to get out of this. And I lose the ability of transcendence. I lose the ability of humility to ask not what my kids can, what their children can do for me, what I can do for them, to ask not what Hashem can do for me. What I could do for him. To ask not always what the Jewish people could do for me, but what I can do for you. Have a wonderful week. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Mezir Chamangit says, it says, two trumpets. So he says, Shtei Chatzoitzris. Chatzoitzris is Chatzoitzuris. Yeah. Next week there'll be a class, Be'ezer Hashem, next Tuesday. It'll be, of course, the last class before Shavuos. A half a form. You know when you have a puzzle, two half forms, and you put it together? Yeah. And the man itself is born of Acharov. Hashem said that later?
I love him. No, Faket, you wonder how that fits with the Maral. It fits with the Maral Poshet. is not a condition, it's a promise. I know that you Of course, Avram is one with me. I'm one with Avram. Of course, he's going to give it over to his children. Of course, I can trust him. Laman is not a condition. It's a prediction. Uh-huh. You understand? Thank you. I'm happy I asked you. That's the whole idea. When this love is unconditional, in other words, I know that we're connected, so of course the Jew is going to fulfill the Ratzon Hashem. Uh-huh. Some people wonder, if you have unconditional love, then the person could spit you in the face. Uh-huh. It's the other way around. Because there's unconditional love, because Hashem knows and feels that he's one with every Jew and every Jew is one with him. So ultimately, the natural, innate, organic, pnimiya state of Ayid is what? To be one with Hashem. The Balatanya said, Ayid vil from A Jew can't, nor does he want to be separated from God. Ah, he says, I do want to be separated. The Rambam says in Hilchiz Gerush, in Perek Beis, that every single Jew, by definition, in his or her very innate nature, there's an alien blockage that eliminates, that blocks it. You understand? So it's not who he is. So fakert, the more you invest in the love, which represents the oneness, we know for sure that it's going to result in you being who you are. The more you could feel yourself, you could feel healthy, you could feel close to yourself, you could feel self-connected, you could feel proud of yourself, the more yourself will emerge. And what's the, what's the self of a Jew? So that's the word. Either Yadatif means there's the Ramban, there's Rashi, there's a Targamunculus. Either Yadatif means I know, I know him, or Yadatif means I love him. There's two Pirushim. So according to Das, Yadatif, I know him. I know it's going to happen. Or there's another interpretation over there. Yadatif is Melashin Ava, Dveikus. I love Avram Avinu. He's for sure going to give it over to his children. As the Maral says here, the choice in Avram and his children is Be'etzem. So for sure it's going to go on. It's never going to die. Something that's not you can disappear one day. Something that's your essence. Yeah, I can't become a horse tomorrow, even if I want to. Why? Because I'm not. I can behave like one, but I can't be a behavior. I could try to be. Maybe sometimes a person behaves that way, unfortunately. But I could never do that. I can't change the color of my eyes. I can't change the color of my soul. So when you love you, forget when you love the essence unconditionally. So then you allow the essence to emerge. If you allow the essence to emerge, but for this you have to be able to be humble. That's uh, humble to see only the essence and ignore the rest. <laughs> Not ignore. You don't have to ignore anything. You have to tune into who the person really is and tune into your relationship with them. And have unconditional love and unconditional pride and feel them and empathize and tune into them and be there for them. If they're doing crazy things, and just several months. If they're doing crazy things. Then never. Then <laughs> If they're doing crazy things. Then never. So then they, need, they, they need you much more. <laughs> then they need you much more. Then don't run away. Then they need you much more if they're doing crazy things. Shem, uh, my mother knew Reb Usher Zelig Margolius. was from the Big Makabalim in Yerushalayim. He was the Rosh Hashiva by my, my grandfather's 
So why did he have to put the mountain over their heads like an overturned vat? They already said Nasav and Ishma. They accepted. What do you have to force them? question. answers. Maral says there's a halacha by Ma'anes. If somebody Khalila coerces, forces like Amnon did with Tamar, the halacha is that if she wants, right, he has to marry her and he can't divorce her. Says the Maral, the Rebbeinu Shalom knew that this marriage is going to go through different challenges. So he forced them into the relationship and he's bound by Torah so he could never ever divorce them. So what's Pshat? It's based on a Medrash. It's actually based on a Medrash. Maral brings it from a Medrash, but he elaborates. What's Pshat? Really? That's what, that's the marriage he basically forced. So Maral explains what it means is, it was trying to bring out that it's not a relationship that tomorrow we could wake up in the morning and say, let's separate. Just like tomorrow I can't wake up in the morning and say, this mother is not my mother, this father is not my mother. I am not I. I am you. <laughs> Based on my DNA, I am I and you are you. Now with DNA we could not manipulate stuff today, geneticists. The soul, you can't manipulate. <laughs> Even geneticists can't manipulate the soul. I can't wake up tomorrow and say... This is not my soul. I don't have this soul. This is who I am. So that's the idea. The relationship is not something that tomorrow we can wake up, any of us, and separate. Essentially, we are connected. You are divine. You are infinite. You are holy. You are sacred. You are good. You are splendid. You are Hashem. The neshama and the guf. Guf of the law in Kaddish, it says in Zoya. So that we have to make everyone feel like, feel like that. Never mind. This is what we try to teach. This is what we try to teach. Yes. About the soul. You know, we believe that we've all been here before. We all know that. And of course, you will meet somebody and you say, Oh, I've yeah. been with you before. We collected money yeah. together. You think that's true with men and women too? Like by a shidduch, by meeting somebody. Like maybe in a previous... Sometimes. There's one piece of this class that I didn't get to do because of the time. And that is the Gilgulim of Amnon and Tamar. Amnon and Tamar came down in a later reincarnation. Rabbeinu Menachem Azariah Fano explains. I didn't get to it, but the son and the daughter of Rabbi Shmuel Kain Gadol. The son and daughter of Shmuel Kain Gadol. The one in the room together, they were a Gilgal of Amnon and Tamar. I didn't get to it. I just want to. So, yes, you're right. Sometimes that happens. It says there was a Makubal, his name was, uh, they called him the Saginar, the Bitzchak Saginar. And uh, when he looked at somebody, he could say right away, this Neshama was, uh, was in this body in a previous Google, and Arizal also. So there's certain people like that. But uh, I, I don't know about this. You feel you met, you knew them already. You knew them already. Yeah, could be. Could be? I'm just asking you. It could be, but you have to, you know, yeah. Take it with a grain of. 
Yeah, you have to be humble about the knowledge that we have. And also we have to realize that the information that we need to know, Hashem gives it to us. And the information that He doesn't give to us, we don't have to know. You know what I mean? For me to spend the rest of my life figuring out my previous Gilgal, it may be fun. But I have enough to do right now in this Gilgal, so let me focus. No, I get it. Yeah. It's possible, yeah. It's certainly possible, no question. It's certainly possible. There's a sefer called Kuntras Havoide from the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab. And he says something very powerful. He says sometimes there's a certain midah that I have such a hard time working on. Something very difficult. He says, why? Other things are not hard for me. This is what he writes. He says, very often, it's one of the reasons my soul came down again. Because whatever I accomplished already in my previous reincarnation, this time it's going to come easy, because my soul accomplished it already. But that which I didn't achieve, and I came down for that, there's going to be a lot of resistance, because it's so important. So the fact that there's so much resistance, let's say I know that there's something I have to do or work on myself, but it's so hard, that's only a sign of how important it is. And that's why there's so much resistance, because that may be one of the reasons why my Neshama came down into this reincarnation. So in, in that resistance, I have to be able to see an invitation not to give up, not to despair. On the contrary, the resistance is stemming because of how valuable this avayda is, this work is. It's very important. I once saw a letter from the Lubavitcher Rebbe to a man, and he wrote to him that the reason shalom bias is so hard for you, having a good marriage so hard for you is, because this is one of the reasons your neshama came back into this world. <laughs> so don't mess up. Don't mess up. It's very, it's important, yeah. The Heleket Sanzeruv, Ruchel Feige, Feige Ruchel, the first Zivog, Chaim Halberstam, the Sanzeruv, Ah, Yuzayda. Yeah, I heard the story from his Einekor of Chaim Rubin, yeah, the Heleket Sanzer, the Duvrei Chaim. With the leg, right? Yeah, yeah, he was, uh, yeah, yeah. He was, uh, he had a limp. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.